Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. When I hear about distressed debt investors today, I think, oh, there's got to be such a dearth of investing opportunities. Our next guest, though, uh, not only focuses on distressed debt, but also distressed equities. George Schultze joins us now, Chief Executive Officer of Schultze Asset Management, which oversees about $200 million. It is based in Purchase, New York. He's in the studios today. Um, George, when we sat down, you said to me, you know, there really aren't that many opportunities on the debt side. Nothing is cheap on the debt side. But in the equity world, you're seeing some uh, potential opportunities. Just before we get into the specific names that you're looking at, why is that? Well, it, it starts at a high level. It's a good question. Um, you know, the bond market and treasury market has been on fire for decades, but that's finally starting to reverse. You have monetary policy that's been extremely accommodative for years, and the Fed is starting to tighten. Uh, now the 10-year treasury is uh, at about 3%. Um, policy remains accommodative, but the Fed has raised rates six times since 2015, and where you know most people are expecting more rate increases going forward. There's also, of course, the unwinding of the Fed balance right. sheet, otherwise so, known as quantitative right. tightening. So there's been there's been a gradual move up in yields, and you said that basically uh, at this point bonds are priced to perfection. You're seeing sort of more of the sort of QE induced froth in the bond world. Why aren't we seeing it in the equities? Well, what's interesting and in what happens after companies restructure. Um, if they do it right, they eliminate sometimes billions of dollars in debt. And what comes out on the other end, uh, all other things equal, is a company with a restructured, deleveraged balance sheet that really isn't that dependent on the fixed income market anymore. And, and what we look for there is really an arbitrage between where the former lenders who received the new post-distress common stock in a, in a restructuring versus and where they'll hold it and what they how they value that versus where the equity market will eventually uh, value that very same company. <clears throat> you know, I, I want to ask you about Tesla and whether you can use Tesla as an example of a company that exists because of low interest rates. Uh, well, yes, it, it is. Uh, what we do in our strategy is we invest long and short up and down the capital structure for companies that are either headed into potential bankruptcy, in bankruptcy, or previously and uh, after they've come out of bankruptcy. Tesla actually fits uh, a template for a company that has bankruptcy risk. And what's interesting there is- Hold on a second. That was the most sanguine way of saying, Tesla looks like it's heading for bankruptcy. That's what you mean, right? Uh, it is. That is what I mean. Um, <laughs> now, it might not happen imminently, uh, the company certainly has a large equity capitalization, but it's clearly overleveraged. Uh, the company has about $12.5 billion in debt, including non-recourse non liabilities. It has $21 billion if you include other balance sheet liabilities. And it also has this arcane liability on its balance sheet, which most other car makers don't. That's $1.4 billion of resale value guarantees. Okay, but, but hold on a second. I, I want to get a sense of how do you short this thing? Because everybody and their mother is short Tesla. You look at this sort of short float, and it's off the, it's off so the charts. Is, is it expensive to short Tesla? Thank you. <laughs> uh, it's not very expensive. Um, but investors should know that for companies that go into bankruptcy, 
equity holders are almost always wiped out. So it might take a little time. You might have to pay to borrow the stock. But you're doing that right now. Uh, we are. We are. Uh, and importantly, How long? How long uh, have you been, been doing, doing it for? for about six months. Um, Has it been painful? Uh, no, it's actually been profitable. It's been a good trade so far. Um, the company has about uh, $2.7 billion of cash on the balance sheet, but in the last 12 months, they burned $5 billion in cash. And if you, you know, look at their last several years, going back four years, they've burned over $9 billion in cash over the last four years. This year, Tesla has about $2.2 billion in debt coming due, and next year, another $1.9 billion. Um, yeah, but all of this adding up, Elon Musk says they don't have to raise more money. Well, that's the thing. And, and I think that's where he's being a little bit misleading uh, or maybe just not knowledgeable, uh, because clearly at that pace, the company doesn't have enough cash. And, you have and the most even tone while you say the most cutting things. Maybe he's just that's not what knowledgeable. Makes it, that's, what, that's why he's able to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know what he's talking about. And he's wrong. That's the uh, translation. Carry on. Yeah. Another, another indication is also what happened with their CapEx projections. They were expecting to spend almost $3.5 billion in capital expenditures this year. I mean, this is a high-growth company. It's basically a startup. So they need to spend that money to continue growing. Now, in their, in their last conference call, they've reduced that amount to $3 billion, which is a big drop. Okay. So, so when do you think that they could potentially declare bankruptcy? Well, Give us a date. I, I think that what's going to happen in the near term is they're going to admit that they had to raise money. And I don't think the equity market's going to like that because it will likely be dilutive. Um, if they don't, uh, they could file for bankruptcy any quarter from now. All right. So let's shift gears a little bit. So we've already uh, decimated Tesla. You're expecting that uh, if they don't raise new money at some point uh, in the next few upcoming quarters, they could file for bankruptcy. A very bold call. Um, what about uh, in the retail sector? Sort of what are the uh, most attractive plays that you're seeing there, given some of the distress we've seen? That's a tough question, Lisa, because I, I don't see anything that's attractive in the retail space, unfortunately, um, except for maybe Amazon, but it's probably priced for perfection. Um, you know, the whole uh, sector has been decimated by this extreme form of new competition with Amazon, you know, just turning the whole business uh, upside down from a secular perspective. Just to go back to this idea of, of Tesla for just a second, Lisa, because I want to know, is this emblematic of indebted companies? Because I think there was a report by PIMCO that showed that in 1990, I know it's a long time ago, about a quarter of investment grade debt was rated triple B or lower. Today, that number is near 50%. Yeah, we are clearly in something that I view as a, as a debt bubble that's starting to reverse. And I think it is emblematic. Um, for a company to go bankrupt, one of the, one of the, it's a sine qua non. You need to have excessive debt. And there are many companies that have excessive debt because the fixed income market has been so hospitable to new financings because rates have been so low. People have been desperate to lend. And that's why startup companies like Tesla have been able to borrow money in the high yield market. But people have been calling uh, the debt market a bubble for years now, and it hasn't burst. And you have seen waves of distress like in retail, I mean, Gibson and Toys R Us, some of the recent filings for bankruptcy, um, there's a lot of distress and pain baked in there. Why, is it still not enough? I mean, what are you looking for? Well, I think as interest rates continue climbing from here, uh, you get a market that becomes less and less hospitable. And people, investors, can look at reasonable alternatives without taking that much risk in the junk debt market uh, to get the yield that they're looking for. I think that'll change and become more and more apparent going forward. And what, what it means for the borrowing companies, the, the riskiest ones, is they won't necessarily be able to refinance as their debt becomes due. 
Okay, just a real quick, we've got about 30 seconds here. Uh, aside from Tesla, what is your highest conviction short position right now? Oh, that's a tough call. You know, besides Tesla, we have just an overall equity market short to hedge our portfolio. That's probably our highest conviction short besides Tesla. What's your highest conviction long? Uh, one of the names we like long is uh, Peabody Energy, uh, ticker BTU. This is post-distress equity. The company came out of bankruptcy uh, early last year, eliminated $7 billion in debt, and trades at about, uh, let's see, at about 2.9 times EBITDA, which is extremely cheap. Well done. Well done. Thank you very much. George uh, Schulte joining us, uh, telling us about uh, the world of Elon Musk, Tesla, and uh, Peabody Energy. Peabody Energy up four-tenths of a percent. Uh, today, uh, the shares are down 4% uh, for the year, symbol BTU. George Schulte, Chief Executive Officer, Schulte Asset Management, based in Purchase, New York. Companies such as AT&T and Novartis uh, paying money to uh, Michael Cohen, at least a shell company that was controlled by Michael Cohen, President uh, Donald Trump's uh, personal attorney. Here to tell us more is Larry Noble, Senior Director and General Counsel to the Campaign Legal Center. They're based in Washington, D.C. Also joining us is Bill Allison, campaign finance reporter for Bloomberg News, and he joins us from our 99.1 studios in Washington. Bill, Maybe you could just outline for people, what do we know so far about companies and their payments uh, to Mr. Michael Cohen? What we know is, is that after uh, Donald Trump's election, uh, Michael Cohen sort of advertised himself as somebody who understood the thinking of and had access to um, President Trump. And at, at, at this point in time, you have to remember that, you know, you have somebody who ran as an outsider, who was an outsider, who didn't have the long Washington history. And companies were looking for um, people who could provide guidance or help them understand uh, how the Trump administration was working. And we know from uh, statements from AT&T and Novartis, uh, two of the companies that hired uh, Michael Cohen, that, that that's what they were. That's what they say they were looking for. They hired Michael Cohen to try to give them insights into the thinking of this administration. Um, Novartis was worried about, uh, you know, there was. Uh, President Trump campaigned against high drug prices. Uh, he made comments about that, you know, during the transition. Uh, AT&T had a pending merger that it was concerned about. And Michael Cohen was the guy who could tell them what Donald Trump is thinking. Okay, so Larry, come on in here. How common is this uh, in a campaign for companies to pay people who have worked around them for to just give them advice on how to handle them? It's it's very common, and one of the things we see is um, the routine revolving door, where people who've worked for administration go out, and there are rules about um, post-employment work you can do, but they go out and they advise companies on strategy um, and how to and how to um, best get their message across to the administration. They're also they also sell contacts and access in the sense that they say I can get you I can um, help you meet whoever you need to meet. What is very unusual about this is most of the time that we see it are there are people who've worked for the government or people who just hold themselves out as consultants. I've never seen before the president's personal lawyer, while he's still representing the president, offer that access. Because he's actually acting in other capacities, at least, as agent of the, of the president. He is his client. And so 
to these companies, it looks like the client, uh, the lawyer for the president, is selling access, and that's I think that's very different than somebody leaving the government and then you know saying you can depend on my knowledge and on my friendship. Here it is; it's an active relationship he has with the president. And I think that's a really unusual part of this. Uh, Larry, what would the role of the Campaign Legal Center be in a situation like this? I mean, would you file some kind of brief with the government in order to get more information? Or what exactly would the role of your organization be? Well, in this kind of context, we're a research and analysis organization and also a watchdog organization. So we are watching it closely. One of the things that um, is happening is the facts are developing each day. So yesterday was a very active day in this, and we don't have all the facts. But if we think there is a, there is a violation of the law here, and there's a potential violation of the, law, of the Lobbying Disclosure Act um, by Michael Cohn, um, but we don't have all the facts yet, um, there's even a possible violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, depending on the facts. If we see the, uh, the facts develop, that way, we can very well file a complaint with the government. All right. So, Bill, come on back in here. Uh, can we just get a sense of where AT&T and Novartis are? Uh, they did come out with statements. Some people expressed some confusion over Novartis's statement. Uh, what do you think is going on inside uh, their corporate headquarters right now? Well, I'm sure that they've, I mean, you know, they've kind of been dragged into uh, because it was the same company involved in the payments to uh, Stormy Daniels, to Stephanie Clifford, the uh, woman that Trump... Uh, the shell company had, that, exactly. that Michael same, Cohen set up, right? Right, the same shell company. So uh, there's also the talk of uh, the payments from a company that's linked to uh, a Russian oligarch. So, uh, you know, in terms of corporate reputation, this was not probably the smartest thing that they've done. I mean, I don't know that they necessarily knew what Essential Consultants was. I mean, I'm sure they thought it was a vehicle that Michael Cohen could be paid through. But um, uh, what Novartis did is they came out and said that essentially we stopped using the services, uh, you know, a few months after hiring uh, Michael Cohen. But they had a contract that they honored all the way through to the end of the year and, you know, paid him – uh, $100,000 a month for, you know, several months when they weren't using his services. And I think that's raised some confusion about, you know, what actually was this relationship and what were these payments for? Bill, uh, who is Elliot Broidy? He is a Republican fundraiser, uh, a, a guy who uh, came onto the Trump campaign, was one of the top um, fundraisers, director of, of finance after Trump won the um, uh, nomination or, or uh, clinched the nomination. And he was a member of the Republican National Committee's Finance Committee. Uh, and he's somebody who um, also used the services of Michael Cohen to uh, uh, with a woman that he had had an affair with who um, uh, basically paid her hush money in the same way. Uh, Michael Cohen arranged the same sorts of payments uh, that he did for Donald Trump and, and when the, the um, uh, Stephanie Clifford um, matter. And, uh, you know, so Broidy has also had his emails hacked. Uh, and there's all kinds of information that has come out about, from these, you know, supposed emails showing that he was somebody who right after the election was going to foreign governments to um, uh, companies and so on and offering his services as somebody who was close to the president and could provide access to uh, and insight into and lobbying for. I mean, he wasn't just limited to, uh, I can tell you what the president is thinking. He was saying that he could influence policy for his clients. 
I want to thank both of you for joining us. Uh, really interesting, and I'm sure this issue uh, will not die in the short term because there are a lot of questions about the line between lobbying uh, and pay to play. Larry Noble, Senior Director and General Counsel of the Campaign Legal Center in Washington, D.C., and Bill Allison, Campaign Finance Reporter for Bloomberg News in Washington, D.C. Yesterday, we were talking about how AT&T in particular probably has an internal investigation going on, probably as does Novartis as to who authorized the payments, who is checking on the efficacy uh, of the data and information they were getting from the company. Uh, We will keep you posted. The shares of companies that make solar panels are surging today. Sunrun, one of the biggest such company, its shares are up nearly 8%. Why? California just passed a new rule saying that all new homes built in the state need to have solar panels on their roofs. Here to talk about this is Hugh Bromley. He is a solar market analyst for Bloomberg New Energy Finance in New York City. He joins us in our 1130 studios. Hugh, thank you so much for being here. Can you first just lay out what California did and uh, how long this has been in the making. Sure. So you're, you're exactly right. They've introduced these, these new building standards, one of which requires that solar panels be installed on all new built homes. That's homes only, not businesses from 2020. Look, it follows seven other US, US cities, six in California, one in Florida, uh, and several countries internationally that have, that have implemented similar mandates on new homes. In some cases, those mandates have extended into commercial properties as well. So it's by no means unprecedented, but it's the first US state to move as a, move it as a whole. I just want to know, does this make any economic sense? I mean, because there are other ways to generate solar-powered electricity, such as solar farms, you know, run by utilities. By some estimates, this is going to cost at least twice as much, if not more, by putting them on the roof of residential structures than by adding them to more utility-style operations. Yeah, that's right. So there's obviously lots of places you can put solar panels, whether it's in a big big field for the, the utility offtakes or whether it's on your rooftop to, to offset your own energy need. And in the US, when you put it on your rooftop, it costs about three times as much, in fact, as if you were to build a large uh, solar farm out, out, out in a field. That's kind of unusual. In fact, when you look at uh, uh, internationally, you see that the cost of rooftop is only about one and a half times the cost of your of, your, of ground mount utility scale projects. So the US does have a bit of a, a cost challenge there to get through to drive down the cost. So why are we cost. doing this? Why does this make any sense? If this is the goal to try to make an efficient renewable energy source, some estimates, I was looking at something called the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. They had a report last year that said residential solar systems cost between 13 and 16 cents per kilowatt hour. If you look at utility uh, scale solar systems, they're like four to six and a half cents for the same a kilowatt hour. Why would California do this then? The, the the reason is that solar energy sitting out in a field by itself is of no use to anybody. It needs to get to the where the, the demand is, and that demand is in the suburbs, in the city. So it needs to arrive in there. So there's no point comparing the energy cost to be out in the in, in the rural areas in a field compared to being on your rooftop. You're you're also avoiding the need for all the copper infrastructure, the networks, the distribution systems to move that power to you. And in that way, rooftop solar can make sense. You're offset more than just the value of energy generation, but also network costs. 
So I'm looking, uh, just going back to the shares of Sunrun in particular, since I believe it's the leader, uh, rising more than 7.5%. I'm just wondering, how big of a deal is this for them? Right, so all the national vendors, Sunrun, uh, Vivint Solar, Tesla to a lesser extent, they're, they're, they specialize in installation. They don't manufacture much equipment themselves at all. And they've all been struggling with kind of declining sales over the last 18 months, two-year period, and, and high and increasing costs, particularly customer acquisition costs. So a mandate on, on, on solar on new homes removes a lot of that customer acquisition. The customer needs solar. It's just about who they who they get it from. Um, if you look just last night, Sunrun reported its lowest level of quarterly installations since Q2 2016 and its highest costs since Q2 2016. So this is one way of breaking through that and finding additional demand that's, that's agnostic to, to price. One other question that I have about this is, do houses have to generate a certain proportion of their electricity using these solar panels on their roofs? You know, I mean, basically, uh, not only are you building them, uh, but, you know, ostensibly you'll have less demand for energy from other utilities. Exactly right. So the, the California Energy Commission would actually like these homes to be essentially energy energy uh, neutral, net really? zero. So produce enough power during the day, feed it into the grid such that they essentially use that energy back at night time. Now, that does cause problems in the grid. If everyone were to do the same thing and feed power into the grid, someone needs to be there to use it during the day, daytime hours. Uh, so that that opens up questions about uh, what, how do we find a mechanism that encourages these, these households to store the energy themselves to use it later on at night uh, if they are to supply their nighttime needs as well. And this is estimated to cost what at least ten thousand dollars more. Yeah, on, on today's levels, that's that's quite a conservative estimate. I think you know our average system costs in California today are closer to fifteen thousand. Uh, so the California Energy Commission's probably uh, betting on some price reductions in the future that uh, that may or may not come to fruition uh, based on the last couple of years of experience. And doesn't uh, this mean that it ends up being subsidized by ratepayers who don't have solar power? Uh, Ultimately not. The cost of building solar will be rolled into the cost of the home and likely into, into, the, into the householder's mortgage. Where there could be some cross-subsidization is if, if the extra solar being fed into the grid uh, means that the grid needs an upgrade and other customers are left to pay for that. Or storage capacity. Well, or storage capacity. But that's actually what I was going to ask. How is this going to affect other utilities in California that currently exist? Yeah, so the utilities, you know, are already seeing, in many cases, seeing declining uh, sales as a result of rooftop solar, as a result of efficiency, uh, as a result of many, many factors and communities moving away from the from their utility through through a kind of unusual model we see in California. Uh, but what it, what it does mean for them is that they may need to spend more investing in the grid, investing in energy storage, investing in network upgrades, and that's actually how they make money. They make money by spending money and rate-basing those investments. Would it be better if they just went to a, a larger-scale project? Look, the California market, the wholesale market at the moment, is saying don't build any more solar. We've got more than we need. Uh, so we don't need solar, whether it's on rooftop or whether it's it's in a field. The only reason to build it is for is for env environmental reasons and and potentially for some industry industry industrial policy. So what we're seeing here is actually a uh, the policymakers forcing in more solar when the market says we don't need it, uh, and uh, and it's just another way to bring in new capacity when the economics are saying no more. Thanks very much for being with us and educating us uh, and educating me. Hugh Bromley, solar market analyst for Bloomberg New Energy Finance on California requiring solar panels in new homes.
Israel has said it has dealt a blow to Iran in Syria after a failed Iranian rocket barrage against Israeli military posts in the Golan Heights. Toby Harshaw is uh, editor for Bloomberg Opinion, and you can follow Toby on Tobin, at Tobin Harshaw on Twitter. And he joins us now from our 11th, uh, from our 991 studios uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, Toby, uh, what can you tell us about the uh, reaction of, uh, let's say, non-Middle East nations to this uh, increase in the conflict in the region? Um, U.S. allies and Russia, for example example um first let me say it's been a pretty exciting 48 hours for uh, us national security geeks so we can talk about uh, north korea anything you guys want to on uh on the immediate reaction uh between uh between iran and its um its syrian proxies and israel is that i think this was inevitable uh no matter what trump had decided uh, on the nuclear deal um and it's going to get a lot worse Okay, so you're talking about the situation in the Golan Heights in Israel and uh, uh, Iranian troops in Syria, correct? Correct. You're, you're seeing that get a lot worse. Yeah, uh, there's already, you know, the, the phrase Great Northern War is already being thrown around Israel and has been for a while. Uh, I think they've resigned themselves to the fact that as soon as uh, as Iranian troops and Hezbollah troops had, had dug themselves in on the Syrian border uh, across the Golan, uh, uh, that this is that this is going to be a major conflict. Can we just zoom out a little bit sure. and talk about the implications of this? Because uh, just recently, a headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal: uh, the U.S. is condemning Iran for the attacks on northern Israel. So clearly, lining up behind Israel in this uh, escalating conflict. How big could it get? I mean, who who gets drawn in here? Um. <laughs> How how big could it get is, you know, nobody knows, um, unfortunately. Um, I don't think that you'll see Israel um, – you know, I don't think this will be like Lebanon uh, in the 80s. I, I don't think we see Israel moving in and taking large chunks of the country to, to create a protective border. Um, if they do send ground, ground troops across the border, I think it would be just to clear out the, uh, the rocket sites. Um, uh, as to that, who else could get drawn in? Um, you know, you've got a lot there with Hezbollah. I don't think that the Russians would probably want their troops uh, and and their support for the Assad government to get involved in any sort of tangle with Israel. But you've got a lot of different factions on the ground there. Uh, a lot of things can go wrong, especially if the uh, if the U.S. starts actually doing something actively to support the uh, the, the Israeli effort. Toby, uh, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, he was speaking at a news conference with his uh, German counterpart, uh, Heiko Maas, in Moscow, saying that the Israel-Iran conflict is very worrying, but also that Germany is asking Russia to help keep Iran in the nuclear deal. I wonder if you could expand on that. Why would they be doing that? Well, um, it, it, actually, both sides seem to be in, seem to be at least paying lip service to this. As soon as Trump announced his decision, um, the uh, the rest of the P five plus one members and Iran itself talked about trying to to salvage the deal um, with the U S. not being a part of it. Um, I personally don't see how that's practicable. Um, if the U S. is actually going to 
enforce sanctions on, you know, any firms that do business with Iran and we're going to punish them, you know, in the banking uh, as well because, you know, let's face it, every every transaction goes through U.S. financial markets in some way or another. I don't see how they could continue to have their trade arrangement uh, unless the U.S. gave the Europeans some sort of waiver on that. I'm trying to figure out how quickly this could escalate. So you have also um, Saudi Arabia coming out and saying, look, if Iran pursues nuclear weapons, we will too. Uh, You have the U.S. weighing in on this whole Israeli conflict. I do wonder when you talk ground troops whether the U.S. would send anyone uh, to the region. This is the reason why I ask, you know, how big could the conflict get? Are we seeing the beginnings of a sort of more protracted and involved, uh, complicated military altercation here? Well, I think the Israelis would say it's been going on for a while, um, and now the Iranians are overtly helping Hezbollah with actual troops on the ground. Uh, and the, you know, the Israelis have been hitting targets in Syria since last year. Um, to go back to the Saudi Arabia thing, I wouldn't give that a lot of credence right now. Um, we don't know what the Trump administration would do. It would be a great idea to make an explicit promise uh, that they are under our uh, nuclear umbrella that it basically the equivalent of Article 5, uh, which we have with Europe, that an attack on one is an attack on all, which is actually an arrangement we have with you know countries like Thailand, which not many people know. I think we could bring the Gulf Arab states under that. Uh, uh, Toby, uh, does um, the U.S. pull out from the Iran nuclear uh, accord Uh, Does that also punish Iran, not only economically, but because of its uh, continued shipments, let's say, of weapons into Syria or support for Hezbollah? Well, um, actually, the the U.S. was able to, um, you know, interdict those shipments and to sanction Iran. Iranian airlines, et cetera, that have been, you know, helping to set up this this passage. Um, even if the deal had been in place, there's a United Nations resolution that um, that Iran cannot export any arms. Um, it's shocking to me how little the U.S. and the Gulf allies have done uh, to actually interdict the ones going to the Houthi rebels in Yemen uh, by water. It's a little trickier, obviously, to take care of uh, the stuff going by air to uh, to Syria. Toby, uh, just in the aftermath of uh, the U.S. announcement with respect to Iran, I'm wondering, do you expect any kind of regime change within that nation? No. Okay. Um, I Even- mean, I, I, not regime change in the Saddam Hussein's. No, not, no um, I'm not. I'm not looking for like a, a sculpture being. I uh, think you know, there could be. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that everyone hopes. Even a, you know, a lot of Iranians hope. Possibly even you know, a majority of uh, of the Iranian people uh, that there will be a very slow regime change. Not a, not a technically a regime change at all, um, but a change in their political system that would uh, you know disempower lessen the power of the uh, of the religious authorities and allow them to have free elections which they have not had at all um, despite all the talk that you get you'll hear from say proponents of the uh, of the nuclear deal about the Rouhani administration calling them moderates is, is simply foolish look at look at all the people they've imprisoned and cracked down on but I think that's going to be a lengthy process yeah. um, and I think even if you had that uh, the Iranians are going to pursue nuclear weapons even yeah. if they had a, a 
U.S.-friendly government in place. Thank you so much for being with us. Toby Harshaw, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, talking about the situation with Iran. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.